0: Thank you, Seth. I'm so privileged to be with you all today. Just so you guys know, you got the bad end of the trade, because Becca is over at uh, BCC this morning. And so I'm going to do my best to not be as bad as I sometimes am. I'm super excited to be with you in this series called uh, Greatest Hits. And it's called Greatest Hits because we've been looking at the best loved stories, the best loved verses contained in the Bible to discover the truth that God actually hasn't hidden away, but he's put there in plain sight. And today we're talking about probably the best written line in the entire Bible. Now, I'm a little bit prejudiced for it. I love it. It comes from the book of John, and you've heard it before. It's John 3.16. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, oh great, why did I come this morning? Somebody I don't know is gonna talk about a verse I've had memorized since I was two. There's people in this room didn't even go to church and you know what John 3.16 is because you saw a guy hold up the sign at a football game. That's how well known this one is. Um, I'm prejudiced to like it because of how well it is crafted, not just in English, but in almost any language it gets written in, it's good because the original is really good, written in Greek. Now. Here's what I want you to know. You and I love well-written lines. We love well-written lines because they speak to us at a, at a level that our minds don't grasp, our heart does. A well-written line is artful. It inspires you to want to be captured by it. And when we come across a line that's written badly, we immediately step back. For, we see it and we, something is off about it. Like there's a retailer, a, a nationwide retailer, and no matter where I go, if I need to use the restroom at this retailer, I always see a really poorly written line, right? It says this. It says, please don't bring unpaid merchandise into restrooms. There's a lot wrong with this. If we started diagramming it, it would be a disaster. But here's what I want you to know. Unpaid merchandise makes it sound like you can take maybe a pair of shorts or something into the bathroom with you if you've paid the merchandise. Don't take those shorts into the bathroom. Unless you put, like, a $5 bill in the pocket, now you can go in. We're not paying the merchandise. (laughs) The word is unpurchased. Please don't bring unpurchased merchandise in the See how that starts feeling a little bit better? Sometimes the bad sentence is wrong because they used the wrong word. I saw this one in the parking garage. Not here. There's no parking garage here. But this one I saw uh, downtown. It says, violators will be towed and fined $50. (laughs) It sounds right when you heard it said aloud, but when you read it, it kind of makes you want to get towed, doesn't it? Because maybe now you've got some money to pay those shorts for in the bathroom at Target. Now here's the thing, right? Every great sentence, every great line has been written into something that, um, that has a context. So like the line, we the people. That was written in the 1700s because there was one person, King George III, who was making decisions that affected the fate of many people. And so a group of people sat down to say, no, no, that's not the way it should be. The people should have a say. So we the people, in order to form a more perfect union, Unity is found very easily with one person, but we, the people, want to come together to find a unity to help with self-determination. It's a beautiful line. It lives within the context of a house that is very special. When Dr. King writes, I have a dream, he doesn't write that beautiful sentence and a beautiful speech mostly extemporaneously, because if you ever watch the video right before Dr. King takes the stage, Mahalia Jackson shouts, tell him about the dream, Martin. And he's like, okay, and then he just lets fly with poetry. He speaks that into a world filled with prejudice, filled with racial injustice, filled with a lack of access to that we the people dream that has been spoken. And so the house that every great line lives in the story that every great line lives in. That's called context. And today, we actually really need to look at the context of the story that John 3.16 takes place in, because I want you to know we don't like context. We resist context. We love to take things out of context, apply them to our lives the way we want to apply them so that we can find our own meaning and place it into life the way we want it to live. It's a little bit like taking an apple off of a tree, an apple is made for eating, but then throwing it really hard at somebody's face. And even if it hits them in the mouth part of the face and they get some apple in there, that's not what the apple was made for. So um, you see this all the time with Bible verses. Uh, one of my favorite, all of the, the, the golfers, the, the athletes, the, um, the gamblers love Philippians 4.13. Right? This is the verse that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. People get this one tattooed. We love this verse. The house this verse lives in, though, is the Apostle Paul talking about how to be content in any circumstance or situation, whether you are abounding in joy or you are falling deeply into depression, that we can be content with Jesus no matter what circumstance we're in. So this verse, if you apply it to sports, I want you all to know, sports, over 50% of the time, somebody is losing. The majority of the cases of sports, right, because sometimes you've got golf where there's one person who wins and about 200 people who lose. So even if you're just playing a card game where it's you and somebody else, you got a 50% chance of losing, but in sports in general, sports are where we learn to lose, not where we learn to win. So if you're gonna put this verse on something in your home, get it put on a wristband and wear it out, just understand that what it's talking about is, I can do all things, I can lose well because Christ gives me strength. I'm not defined by my losses. I'm not defined by my successes. I'm defined by who I am in Jesus Christ, that God's Spirit lives within me. That's what it's about. And because we don't like context, we want to push it away, take it mean, Take a verse, take a line, make it mean what we want it to mean, and then set out to do our own thing. That's not what Jesus invites us to do. Jesus hasn't invited us on our own adventure. He's actually asking us to surrender and submit ourselves to his so that he can shape and transform us and produce those things he wants to see in the world. So. The context, the house that John 3.16 lives in, is attached to two stories, and one of them you've heard, and the other one you may not have heard, and there's going to be a point in time when I'm telling it real briefly that you're going to go, that's a weird story. I don't know why he's saying that. But let's have fun with it together. That first story is the story of God making a garden, and the first two people, man and woman, Adam and Eve, putting them into it, and a failure the failure to obey God, to say, no, I will define life on my own terms. I will choose good and evil for myself. And the brokenness that comes from this is a curse. A curse that settles in on all humanity, all manner of inequity between people, between man and woman that then becomes between husband and wife, that then comes between father and son, mother, daughter, all of the inequity that we experience in life, all of the brokenness flows from that story. The entropy of our world. We sit under the painful spreading like a virus of evil from person to person. The second part of the story is this one. When the people of Israel were kept as slaves in Egypt, God set them free. And in their journey through the wilderness, they started expressing all of their brokenness. And in that brokenness, they said, no, we'll do our thing. We'll grumble against God because now that he's given us freedom, we're angry, we don't like what it is. And we don't like our leadership in Moses. And so the Bible says snakes come out and begin striking the people and they're poisonous snakes. And they're... they're Crying out to God, what should we do? And God tells Moses, I want you to make a serpent out of bronze. I want you to put it on a pole. And I want you to, this is that weird story I was talking about. And I want you to raise it up into the air. And I want you to tell everyone who looks at the snake, they will be saved. But the people who don't look at the snake, they will die. And Moses makes the snake and he raises it up on the pole. And sure enough, everyone who looks at the snake is saved. And everyone who doesn't look dies that is the floor and the walls of the house we're going to look at today. And so, to look at the verse together, Jess is going to come up and she's going to read John 3:16 for us. Will you welcome her to the stage with me?
1: This week's passage is John 3:16 through 21. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not be perished but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light, so others can see that they are doing what God wants. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thank you, you, Jess. So, if we've defined the floor and the walls of this story, I'm going to talk about the front door. The front door of this story is that Jesus has appeared on the scene in the first century. He was born, he's lived 30 years, and he's begun his public ministry, but his public ministry is defined by some things people can't quite figure out because he's turning the order on its head. See, up until this point, there's been... A lot of strife, both politically, socially, and religiously. Because no matter how things change, they stay the same, do they not? And into this situation, right, religiously, the people of Israel have just come back from being captive in Babylon. And as they've come back, they've brought two opposing ways of following God with them. The first is, while they were in Babylon, they didn't have access to the temple. So they had to figure out a way that they could religiously worship Yahweh, the God we worship today, without having a place to offer sacrifices. So what they did is they developed a system to make sure everyone followed the law of Moses. Remember, they had gone into captivity because they hadn't been following the law of Moses. So they developed a system wherein rabbis taught the people in synagogues and lawyers called Pharisees traveled around to make sure everyone you following the rules because if you're not following the rules we don't want to it could get worse than this make sure you don't mess it up and that comes back from Babylon with them when they come back to the promised land but there's another group of people and these are the Sadducees the Sadducees are the ones who said Hey, right now the Romans rule the world, and if we don't submit to them, we'll lose everything. So the Pharisees, the lawyers, the rabbis, the synagogue is one system, and the second system is up at the temple where they've rebuilt the temple, and they're offering sacrifices, but they're also giving homage to the Romans, and these two groups of people are butting heads, and in the middle of it, Jesus appears, and he starts teaching not under the authority of the temple and not under the authority of the rabbis. He begins teaching under the authority of God. He says things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And then he will appeal to the ancient scriptures. And it starts blowing people's minds. It starts producing a deconstruction. People are saying, wait, what is it that I should believe And Jesus begins doing things like summing up the law and the prophets as love your neighbor as yourself and the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he begins to say, come and follow me. And his message of repentance and turning to God instead of to the forms of organized religion produce a real pain point for the Pharisees. One of them, a man named Nicodemus, contacts Jesus and says, hey, secretly I want to meet with you by night. And he begins taking his questions directly to Jesus. Here's something I want you to know, and this is not something we're going to spend a lot of time on. It's just something that it's really important for us to understand. If you have questions, always take them to Jesus. If you take your questions to something else, you will deconstruct yourself into an oblivion. But Jesus knows exactly who you are. He knows who the Father is, and his job is to unite those two. So every time the Apostle Paul says something to the Bereans, they go right to Jesus. They search the scriptures to see, is it true? If you run to Jesus with your questions, your faith will be strengthened, and all of the stuff that needs to fall away will fall away because Jesus is trustworthy. God's Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. And so Nicodemus sits down and he begins asking Jesus questions because he can see that something is different. Jesus is not just preaching, he's also performing miracles under God's power. And so he begins asking, what should I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, you have to be born Again, and this blows Nicodemus' mind. Wait, born again? How can I go back into my mother? Jesus says, no, no, I'm saying there needs to be a new birth of new life. You need to reject what you were living and live as God created you to live. Stop living out the curse, the brokenness of the world, and lean into the love that God has for you. And that's when he says, this is how God loved the world He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And this is a beautifully written line, because it's a couplet. It's got two parts, right? The first one, that God loves who? The world. This is a radical concept for the time, because up until now, both schools of thought taught that God loved one group of people. Specifically, the men of that group of people more than he loved anyone else. You see, being a part of God's chosen nation was something they misunderstood. They hadn't been chosen exclusively. They had been chosen instrumentally. That they would be God's instrument by which God would love the world. And so God loves the world. How much? To give his only son. That's the first part. The second part, So that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That God, through Jesus, is going to exchange perishing, right? The entropy of our world, the brokenness, the falling apart of our world. He's going to swap that for Jesus' eternal life. That instead of things being in a state of constant decay, instead of our lives being corrupted, instead of passing that corruption on to others, that we will be restored, restored to the life that God had once given Adam and Eve together, side by side in his garden, that that perfect kingdom ruled by God as king would be restored through Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful sentence. But he goes on to say this, and if that first verse is important, this next one, 17, it should always be on the sign. There is, oh wait, sorry. God sent not his son into the world to judge the world, but to save the world through him. That Jesus came to the earth not to bring condemnation and judgment, but to bring salvation. This is very, very important for us to grasp because the world already sits under condemnation. Have you ever noticed it's much easier to do a job that's already been done than a job that's really hard to do? If somebody gives you a job that's really hard to do, one of the first things we think about is, what job could I do besides that job? I do this all the time. When I was in college, I would regularly, I feel terrible for college students now because there aren't really like CDs or records or tapes. All the music gets downloaded and you can listen to it whenever you want. But they give me like a term paper that I have to write. The first thing I do, I I cannot work in an environment like this. I need to organize every single one of these CDs. I need to make sure the books are in order, all my socks are folded. Do a job that I don't need to do that I know I can do under my own strength rather than attempt a job that's so difficult I can't do it on my own. The world is already condemned. Jesus did not come to condemn the world. That job's already been done. He came to do the difficult work of living perfectly, dying in our place, and then being resurrected again by God's Holy Spirit to give us life. And he did that difficult work by depending on the Father. He gave us a job, which is to go into all the world and what? Proclaim the good news, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is a job we cannot do without him and the power of his spirit. So guess what job we like to do instead? Condemn the world. This is why many churches suffer from the, we're doing okay in here, it's all those people out there, and if we could just change everything that's going on out there, then we'd be fine in here. Problem. Where the truth is, the world already sits under the brokenness the condemnation, the hurting, failing systems. And it needs to hear the good news that Jesus is the solution. That no matter how much we don't like the bad stuff that might be happening out there, we can't stop from feeling it in here and wanting to do it ourselves. But that when we are filled with God's spirit, he not only gives us a new vision for how to live in his kingdom, he also gives us the power to do it. That's good news. That no matter what ism you're broken by, workaholism, alcoholism, sexism, racism, no matter what the ism is, the solution for it is the rehumanization, the new way to be human, the new dignity that comes from the power of God living in us. And if Jesus didn't come and condemn the world, what makes us think that it's our job to do a job that Jesus didn't do? That's what's difficult, right? That those fingers are pointing at me. Oh, but here's the great news. John goes on to say that Jesus says, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. There's no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. See, we all begin under the judgment. We all live out that curse. We all inflict damage on other people, and we all receive damage from others. But when we trust Jesus, when we receive him as our Savior, when we live as if he is our king, now there's no more judgment. And this is really important. This is something that we all have to grasp. Scripture says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those people who are in Christ Jesus. Which means guilt is not for Christians. We've been forgiven. Feeling guilt and shame is something that we set down. What we feel instead is conviction. The Holy Spirit comes and convicts us of righteousness and gives us the power to live it out. So we get to enter the world with a new conviction that Jesus is the solution for humanity's problems and that we can't sit by and watch them take place. It's our job to engage. And as we engage, we see Jesus' kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Now this lack of judgment from God comes to us for, be- for believing in Jesus. And this is a really interesting part of the story, an interesting part of the greatest hit is that we have to figure out what it means to believe in Jesus. And we've got a real problem in the modern era of what belief is. See, we tend to think that belief is agreement. When Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, do you believe in God's one and only son? And that those who believe won't perish but receive God's everlasting life. He's not saying to believe that I exist. We tend to use science to prove whether or not something exists and then say that we believe in it. I do not believe in unicorns, as awesome as they might be, because science has not proven that they exist. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about believing. You see, agreeing about something isn't necessarily believing. In The first century, most of the people spoke a trade language. That trade language was Greek. And the word for belief in Greek is the Greek word, "pistuo," And it means to think to be true, to be convinced or persuaded of, to place our confidence in, to center our confidence in something. If I believe that a light switch will produce light in the room, then I will place my confidence in that flipping the switch will turn on the lights. I don't just walk around going, well, scientifically, I understand how it's wired, and I think if you press the button, the lights will come on. There is always an action that follows belief. Spiritually speaking, right, when you believe and you are convinced, when you are persuaded of the fact that Jesus is God, who died for us to make that great exchange, when we believe that, there is an action step of baptism that demonstrates it. All throughout the Bible, you can't separate agreement with God and action, which is why in Hebrews 11, when it walks us through all the great heroes of the faith, it says things like, by faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Abraham left the city. He was by faith, people do things. They can't be separated. Step one is to agree. Step two is to center your confidence and say, this is the only solution for me. And step three is to act. And we see this because right as as right right, right as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he says something. Remember that weird story I told you about the snakes? He says this right before we get to John three sixteen. 16. John 14 says this. Just as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on the pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal Everyone who believed that God would save them was asked to look. The action step was to look at the snake. If you believe, you will look. If you think this is all just a bunch of malarkey, you will not look. Jesus is appealing to a story from the ancient scriptures that Nicodemus would have understood, that in the same way that the snake was raised up and people had to look, I will be lifted up. He's talking about his crucifixion long before it ever happens. And he's saying, everyone who looks on me, everyone who places their confidence in me, who turns from their way of doing things, being the master and Lord executioner of their own life, will be saved. You ever notice how easy it is to do things your way instead of God's? It's so much easier. Can I tell on myself for a minute? One person's like, I hope that you would. (laughs) Uh, Ever since I was little, I've been able to talk myself out of just about any problem, either because I could lie to someone, or I would just wear them down and they would give in. Some of you are going, shocking. Uh, So I learned that my way, which protected myself, was really, really easy. It was much easier than doing the hard thing of telling the truth or being patient. I was a youth pastor for a lot of years, and one day uh, we planned a whole winter retreat, months and months, medical forms, money, deposits paid, all this stuff. We're going up to Mount Hood. It's going to be really great. Kids are going to play in the snow. It's fantastic. And then we got snowed out. That doesn't sound like it's possible. It is. Snow was over the roofs of the lodges. We couldn't even get into the camp. They called us and said, hey, sorry, you can't come. Too much snow. I was like, what are we going to do? This is like two days before. So we got on the phone, we found another place that would take us, but it wasn't on the mountain because everybody on the mountain was closed. It was kind of a a camp that was being refurbished out in the valley. I was like, okay, well, we can have camp now. I was like, what am I going to do about this? So you know what I did? I got all the the kids all showed up, and this is what I said. I said, you guys, I got some bad news for you. We got to go, we we can't go on the mountain, we're snowed out. But we got this situation, we're all going to go stay at this camp, and I got these. Um, they got, they got these teepees and we're all going to stay in these teepees. Now here's the deal. Like we got to have a teepee leader for every teepee. There'll be boys teepees, girls teepees. And uh, the, the teepee leader's in charge of making sure the fire in the middle is always going and that the flap at the top is open because if we don't keep it open, the smoke will build up inside and everyone's going to smell like beef jerky. And then there's just going to be like one log wash house that everyone has to take turns using to get, and everyone was just looking at me like, except for one kid who hunted a lot. And he was like, yes, teepee coordinator. In this situation, right, Um, none of that was true. It just made it so that when I said, you guys, I'm just kidding, I'm making all that stuff up, we're going to another camp, it's going to be really cool, there'll be bathrooms in your own room, it's just not going to be in the snow. They were like, all right, load up, let's get out of here. I leveraged my own way to make things easier for me, but it wasn't necessarily honest, was it? I didn't necessarily believe that if I just came out and said what was true, God would reward that in some way. Our way, using our skills and our gifts and our abilities, is not God's way. It's not surrendering and submitting to Him and being filled with His Spirit and Him giving us the power to stay in a course of action and do things His way. And so much of my life is thinking about my initial, what do I think I should do, and then saying, I need to spend the time pursuing God, listening to his voice speak to my inner life through scriptures, through other faithful believers, and then surrendering and submitting to that. And not really having a guarantee of the outcome. But that's living a new life. Jesus goes on to say to Nicodemus, and the judgment is based on this fact, the reason the world is under judgment, that God's light came into the world, but people loved darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. This is the hardest thing for any of us to come to grips with. We prefer the darkness, because it's easier. That God's light shines in the darkness, but we recoil from it. Each of us has great gifts and abilities that, if surrendered to God, produce godly things in the world that produce his kingdom come. But we'd rather see our kingdom come. Because we don't trust or believe God. We haven't centered our confidence in him and we haven't acted. So instead we act sinfully. My wife and I adopted a beagle when uh, she was just barely born, and our neighbors adopted a beagle. So we, two beagles, right? Their names were Phoebe and Louis. This is them on their birthday when they received a geriatric ramp. Um, and Phoebe is the one in the foreground. Louis is the one in the background. Beagles are wonderful dogs. They're sweet dogs. They're fun dogs. They're exciting. They're, they're fantastic. But beagles are ruled by their nose. Their nose is their superpower. When they smell something, they want it. Each of the dogs had the same superpower, but their personalities were different, so the superpower took over them differently, right? Phoebe demonstrated radical food-seeking behavior. This is her. You would believe from this photograph, we did not feed this dog. This dog ate the highest quality food, could not keep itself out of garbage cans or dishwashers, needed to eat the disgusting things that it smelled. Lewis was different. Lewis didn't eat nasty food. Lewis, though his parents provided him with a bed, would come to our house, run up the stairs, steal the laundry hamper bag, bring it downstairs, and make a bed for himself out of it. My wife and I run. When you get done running, you stink. That laundry basket smelled so bad, he would have to get a bath, having laid on it. Didn't care. He thought he smelled better after having laid on it. Here's what I want you to know. Right? Every time we choose our thing to do our way, because it's easier, because it's more fun, it's simpler. Sin, that's what it's called. Sin is the meal we make for ourselves. It's the bed we make for ourselves, because we don't trust that there is something better. We don't center ourselves in God, trusting that Jesus is who he said he is that he will supply all of our needs according to his riches, not our desires. We prefer the darkness to the light. And unless we surrender to him as king, we will keep making meals from the garbage and sleeping on the stinky hamper. And until we see sin as those things, we won't want to walk away from them. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. For people who have placed their confidence in Jesus, our relationship to light is the test. The light is Jesus who shines in the darkness. It's his way. How we respond when Jesus' word comes to us, when he defines something as sin, when he defines something as righteousness, whether we run from something and run to him, what we run towards is the sign of where our faith is. Is our faith in ourself or is it in him? That's the test. And everyone who runs to that light puts Jesus on display to others. So if we're here today, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal, everlasting life. Now in this life and in the next. Abundant life and eternal life. When we live that way, it puts it on display for others to see. Which means some of us are here in the room and it's our job today to run to the light. Maybe for the very first time. Maybe you've never trusted Jesus. You've never said, no, he is the savior of the world. He is the savior of my world. I need to give my heart to him. I need to place my confidence to center my faith in him. And I'm willing to sacrifice and surrender my life, my way to see that happen. Maybe today's your first day. It doesn't have to be some big demonstration. It's making decision to flip the switch in your heart. No more me, yes to you. No more making nasty meals for myself, making nasty beds for myself. I need to pursue him. We have people here who would love to pray with you. There's people right back at the table to solidify that decision and the action step of choosing to become baptized. That's a step to demonstrate, no, no, I am turning from what I had and running towards the light of Jesus. Some of us need to to take this step of just keep stepping further into the light. You ran to the light at one time but there's things that you can do to hear God's voice more fully, to hear it more clearly, to experience it more fully. You guys have life groups. You can sign up to get into community with other believers. Maybe you've believed, but you haven't taken the step of baptism. It's time to get baptized. You know what the number one way to find godly community and grow is? It's to serve. This is a great church. Many people in this room serve, especially at the next hour. But finding a way to serve. Maybe it's with CSC and doing a meal. But to give to others, to take steps into the light points to Jesus as the Savior. I am engaging in this because you don't have, and when I didn't have, Jesus gave to me. I didn't have a rightness, a righteousness of my own. He gave to me. I want to give to you as a result. When we do this, we live our lives in such a way to let our light so shine before humans that God will see, our the people will see our good deeds and point to our Father who's in heaven. Maybe it's taking the step of giving. This is a great church, by the way. I don't go to this church. I'm maybe the only person who can say this and not seem greedy. You should give money to this church. You you want to see good churches grow and thrive. Bless good churches with the things they need to grow and thrive. It's a step into the light. Lastly, share that light that you found with others. You don't have to condemn the world. You don't have to convince anyone of anything. You just share what Jesus has done in your life. The good news is for Nicodemus, this all works. When Jesus dies and his body's on the cross, Nicodemus is the one who says, let's take his body down and put it in the tomb. So when Jesus rises from the dead, he's one of the first people to find out about it. When we're willing to share the light we have found with others, we don't actually have to live in fear about how bad things might go. We trust that they will go right as we point to Jesus. I want to read you this last little verse. John writes this a couple of chapters later. He says this. Jesus says, that when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. You don't have to convince anybody. You don't have to draw anybody. You keep stepping into the light and pointing at Jesus. He will draw people. Remember, Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me. That my spirit draws people. When we live that life, his gospel, fully constructed around him, transforms lives. Trust. Place your confidence that he will draw people to himself as you embrace his light. Let's pray. Father, we're just blessed that you are good, uh, that you are powerful and that you are um, mighty is important, but that you use that power and might in conjunction with your goodness to bless us is beautiful. And so today I pray that you would give us peace and joy as we follow you, God, We're grateful, in Jesus' name, amen.